We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24 this morning. Acts chapter 24, we'll pick up in our reading of the scriptures here. Luke writes, Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he had called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thanks, thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you in any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the, most, I do the, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets, and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty, and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came down with his wife, Drusilla, who, were Jewish, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given by Paul, given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, 
Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. We come to the conclusion in these days of our series in the book of Genesis. So if you turn to the last few chapters of the book, starting in 48, we'll see how far we get here today. The title of our message today is The End of the Beginning. The End of the Beginning. And in this portion, Jacob gives a prophecy about the patriarchs that is still relevant today. As I say in my notes, when I began the series in August of last year, I didn't expect really to develop a series through the entire book. I had kind of thought, well, maybe I'll teach the first 12 chapters or so and then move on to something else. But one thing led to another, and here we are after having gone through almost the entire book. We've seen that this book of beginnings adds to the weight of evidence that God's word is critically important from start to finish. The Bible as a whole, and specifically with Genesis in mind in this series, equips us to be godly people according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Remember the scripture, it says there, all of it is breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished or equipped for every good work. And so we continue our study and we'll try to see a little bit more about how we can be wise unto salvation and uh, as Timothy was in the verses before that, 2 Timothy three fourteen and 15, but also equipped for godly living. In chapter 48, we see that Jacob blesses Manasseh and Ephraim in really what is kind of an adoption ceremony, very interesting and odd in a way uh, for that. We don't really see much in the scripture about adoption in the Old Testament or adoption in terms of kind of the, the secular view or practice, I should say, of it, where somebody is an orphan and needs new parents. The community evidently had its culture and practices regarding that. So if two parents passed away and they had children, they were taken care of by other family members. It was just simply expected and done. Uh, We don't see a formal kind of adoption law of that sort uh, in the scriptures that I uh, can recall. But we have something here that's like it. And so The chapter is about the blessing that Jacob bestowed on his two grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, those sons of Joseph. Jacob recounted how God had promised him the Abrahamic covenant and the land for an everlasting possession. Let's read in chapter 48. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. One of the key things you have to know about the book of Genesis is it's a a book of the covenant. It's a book of the covenant with Abraham. I mean, you go back all the way to chapter 12. The same exact language is used 250 years earlier or better. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, listen to this, your two sons, remove that clause there in the middle, who were born to you, your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are mine. Now, that seems strange, doesn't it? I'm taking over your kids. How would you like that? As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, and then he goes on and gives a little more history here. When I came from Paddan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is... Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons. So we have this kind of very bold action, but it's a very honorific one. It effectively, what it does is it doubles Joseph's inheritance among the tribes of Israel. 
because now he has two portions. He wasn't the oldest. The oldest is kind of out, as we'll see. But uh, it's a very interesting, honorific action that Jacob took. Another result is that the two youngsters would become heads of two of the tribes of Israel, although they themselves would die long before the nation left Egypt to go back to the land of promise. They never actually resided in the lands that are named after them or the tribal allotments named after them. Jacob then recalled the story of his love, his sad story of Rachel who passed away beside him in the land of Canaan and how he buried her near Ephrath. Somehow seems strange that the, the men outlived their wives in so many cases here instead of the other way around like happens today. Not always, of course, but that's a sad kind of episode in his life. But he's about to give the blessing here, and uh, you'll recall the, play, the important place of blessing in chapter 27 when the blessing was so important that it's, it was seemed uh, fit that they would um, arrange to have it stolen remember, uh, from Isaac. Uh, here it's going to happen again this time with Jacob presiding over the blessing instead of stealing the blessing. A similarity in the two situations is that Isaac was very dim of eyesight before, so it's hard for him to tell which son was which, and now Isaac, or Jacob rather, is the same. And he's blind as well. So in chapter uh, 48, verse 8, she saw Joseph's two sons and said, Who are these? Now, you might think, well, that's kind of a strange question. But he wants to ensure the identification of the two grandsons, which one is which, that they are, in fact, his grandsons, and which is the older and which is the younger, because he knows all too well the difficulty of identifying the right person when you're blind, especially when it comes to the time to receive a blessing when somebody might be trying to steal it, like he did. <laughs> so maybe he wants to be sure about this. This is an all-important blessing because it has to do with the Abrahamic covenant. Now, there's a little sidebar here in the notes. Moses sees fit to put this in here. He talks a lot about it in chapter 27. He talks a lot about it here in 48 and chapter 49. So three chapters out of 50 are devoted to this kind of end-of-life passing of the blessing, passing of the heritage, passing of the torch to the next generation. Um, in, in, uh, must be important in Moses' mind and also in God's. The contents of the blessings hold a great deal of significance for the future unfolding of the history of the nation of Israel, connected as they are to the Abrahamic covenant, and they're at least partly prophetic in nature. Uh, we'll see that especially in chapter 49, but a little bit here in chapter 48. There is a concern about through whom these blessings flow. You know, we sing the doxology, don't we? Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. But let me ask you this, through whom do those blessings flow? And then through whom? Those blessings of God that we praise Him for from above, all the angels, the heavenly host, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and all creatures here below, praise Him for the blessings that come from above, but where do they go? They go to you. And so he's talking about the blessings flowing through, well, from Abraham to Isaac, not to Esau, but to, to Jacob, not to Ishmael. And as well, he speaks of the level of participation that people, various ones, will have in the blessings. Reuben, for example, not so much as, say, Judah or Gad or the others. The blessings also relate on a human level to the distribution of personal property, and of land. I'm afraid that in our day, the only concern seems to be the material one. What does the will or trust say? Who gets the money? You know, when's the free windfall coming? Uh, I just want the cash. The focus of the Christian person must instead be on the spiritual heritage that is passed down from one generation to the next. Millions of dollars matter very little if somebody is unsaved, if the next generation does not know the Lord, it doesn't matter how much money is passed down to them. The most important and most valuable heritage is the Christian heritage passed down from you to your children. And so I encourage you to be thinking about that now while you're younger, 
strong, while you have your wits about you, you can write something, you can prepare for how you're going to share with your children as time goes on uh, about the importance of that heritage that they have and that you're passing on to them. Now remember, as we move on then into the portion of the text that talks about the passing of this blessing, remember that Manasseh was the firstborn and Ephraim was the secondborn. We see that back in chapter 41. Now, we go on in the reading. Joseph answers, said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought him them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. What an amazing thing for him. For decades, thinking that he would never see his son alive again. And yet now he's not only seen his son, he's seen his son in great glory in Egypt, and he's seen his two grandsons as well. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. It seems that they're fairly young yet, uh, and they are from the chronology. You could probably figure out about how old they are. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And so you kind of have to think carefully about the orientation of this and how the right hand goes to the left hand, the left hand goes to the right hand, and that, if you do that, you'll see that Joseph placed the boys strategically for his blind dad's benefit, using his left hand to guide Manasseh toward Jacob's right and using his right hand to guide Ephraim toward Jacob's left. Jacob's right hand was the place of higher blessing. But then a surprising thing happens. Read it in verse 13. Sorry, verse 14. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. You see that? He's got the right-hand man here, the oldest and the youngest, and then uh, Jacob does this. Joseph had put the kids in the right spot, but now Dad switches. And it says he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. Was Jacob the elder himself? He knew a thing or two about the older and the younger swapping, didn't he? Yes. This switcheroo, if you will, this crisscross arrangement of the blessing displeased Joseph, but Dad knew what he was doing. Dads often know what they're doing, don't they? Not always. But this blessing is a prophecy that Ephraim would become greater than his older brother, just like the younger Jacob was chosen over his older brother Esau. So it's an interesting parallel to the previous generation. Manasseh would indeed be blessed, he says, but Ephraim more so. Therefore, Ephraim was set ahead of his brother, and both of them would be a pattern of blessing for others. We read on. It says, uh, but his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great, that is the older, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Somehow, by the superintendence of God's Spirit, he had revealed this to Jacob. So he was a prophet here. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he said Ephraim, 
before Manasseh. You know, it's like uh, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. You know, that's setting David before Saul, and of course that just rubbed Saul the wrong way. Here Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Now, obviously, he's speaking corporately, speaking in terms of a tribal solidarity. Okay? Joseph himself is not going back, nor Manasseh and Ephraim are going back, but you, your, your offspring, will go back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. Jacob identifies God as the God of his fathers and his God, as you recall, from his journeys in his life and how he dedicated himself to God. And he asked God to bless the young grandsons and put his, put his name upon them. Um, we've confirmed that the extra portion came to Joseph compared to the 11 other brothers. Uh, he says that in verse number 22, a portion above your brother's. Levi, uh, of course, didn't get his own portion in terms of land inheritance. You remember that? He didn't have his own land. So Levi is out, Manasseh and, and Ephraim are in. So we, have, we go from 12, we could say, minus Levi to 11, back up to the 12 with the addition of Manasseh or Ephraim, whichever one you want to say is the extra one. Um, the portion had to do ultimately with the land of the Amorite, You notice that I took this land, he says, from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, when did he do that? Where did he do that? Do you remember reading that and did we ever talk about that? Or did I skip it? Doesn't tell us. Uh, The fact of the military conflict is not told us in the narrative of Genesis, it was not important enough to bring forward, but it's clearly the case because he says so here. He was involved somehow in the conquest, the early conquest of a little portion of the land for him to dwell in at least. It's not surprising because the inhabitants of the land often troubled his father Isaac about where, where to dig wells and grazing space and all of that. And the generation before that, Abraham had to defend his dwelling place and rescue who? Whom? Lot from in the Battle of the Kings. So evidently the violence did not entirely escape Jacob's generation either. Sad testimony, but true. Anyway, it wasn't that important that we had a long uh, uh, section about it, devoted to it uh, by Moses in the book of Genesis. So now we move to chapter 49. And we have the, the whole chapter is basically a prophecy, almost the whole thing, uh, of, the, of the sons. Again, Jacob exercising the role of prophet. Uh, and I'm just going to go through these briefly. He gathers his sons together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. So we don't think of Genesis as a book of prophecies, but it is here. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben. Reuben is laid low because of his sin with his father's concubine, Bilhah. That was in chapter 35. And it's sad because it says, You are my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. But there's something wrong. He's unstable as water. You shall not excel because of his sin. Jacob then also chastised Simeon and Levi. And actually, so what happened was the, the kind of prophetic blessing turned into what? A prophetic curse right in line with the theology of the book of Genesis, blessing and cursing. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them 
in Israel. Not a blessing at all. Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi. I was just uh, remembering with the later study on this, uh, Revelation chapter 7, we have a listing of the tribes of Israel. We have Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, there's Simeon, there's Levi as well, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. There's somebody missing there. We have Joseph and we have Manasseh. Joseph evidently covering Ephraim. So Manasseh's in, but somebody else is out because Levi is in that list. Well, let's see who it is. Jacob prophesies next about Judah. It says, You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, as a, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? See, that's where we get the lion of the tribe of Judah language. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. What does that mean? That means that it's going to be the ruling clan of the whole nation. That's what that means. Okay, so the scepter comes and does not depart. Nor, he says, a lawgiver from between his feet, so in his progeny, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, about, about Judah, Judah is victorious over his enemies, or will be rather. He'll be like a lion. The scepter will not leave his tribe. And this seems most, uh, to most Bible students as a pretty obvious reference to the Messiah, but why? Judah will be a progenitor, the progenitor of a line of rulers up to a person identified as Shiloh. He himself, Judah, and that, that is his tribe, will be like a lion. And later references to the, the Messiah refer to him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5.5. 5. Psalm 110 says that he will have the obedience of the people. Your people will be volunteers in the day of your power. He will have a place of prominence even washing his garments in wine. Notice this, verse 11, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What about all this? Well, it's, it's a bit, there's a bit of kind of cryptic nature to it uh, because it's, it's a prophecy, but we put together the pieces as best we can from the rest of Scripture, as I've already alluded to with references to some other Scriptures. Here's another one in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 4. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? This is a messianic portion. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Okay, the winepress is not a winepress of grapes. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Who is this one who comes from Edom with dyed garments in red? It's the the Messiah, none other than Jesus, the one who would trod out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And language we find in the book of Revelation. This Messiah is glorious in appearance with eyes darker than wine and teeth whiter than milk. He's not pictured here as the marred visage Messiah of Isaiah 52 and 53. Remember, we didn't like how he looked, Isaiah writes, but this one, more like perhaps 
the one that John, the version of the Messiah that John saw in Revelation, that great one with white hair and the, and the fiery eyes, the glorious garb. But the meaning of Shiloh is also a little bit uh, debated, a lot maybe. The larger phrase may be translated until the one comes to whom the scepter belongs or until he comes to whom it belongs. It's admittedly a bit confusing, but Jesus did come from the line of Judah and he fits the other descriptors perfectly. And notice the text says, until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So evidently Moses was understanding Shiloh to be a reference to a person, not a place, not the place called Shiloh, um, but a person, and this person is the Messiah. So Jacob is prophesying way in advance here of the coming of one who will have quite a role to play in ruling the people of his own uh, offspring. We carry on then, uh, moving through these prophecies. 13 is Zebulun, who will dwell by the haven of the sea. He will become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon, so indicating something of his uh, future, what his future dwelling place or allotment is to be. Issachar is a strong donkey. That might not seem to you to be a, a very, I don't know, complimentary kind of phrase, but... It seems to refer to them as an industrious bunch of people, like a strong donkey, uh, busy doing work, lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good, so there's a little bit of a shift there, and the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and then became a band of slaves. So a little bit of prophecy about what's going to happen with them. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. But then look at what it says in 17 and 18. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. That's not a good outcome, is it? I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. So the end of Dan is not good. His impact on others is terrible, will be terrible. Jacob hopes for that tribe's salvation. I'm looking for it, verse 18 says, but... We wonder, because in Revelation where we read, there is no mention of Dan. He's missing. Dan, you might recall, maybe from Judges and further passages in the Old Testament, really went astray, was up in the far north of Israel, like the farthest away, um, and it seems to just kind of disappeared off the scene, the sad testimony of Dan. Um, then we have Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. They each get a small portion in Jacob's prophecy. Um, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. So after some initial tribulation, he shall come to the fore. Asher will provide bread that is rich and shall yield royal dainties. Agricultural plenty seems to be the indication here. And Naphtali is a deer let loose, very um, agile, speedy and also uses beautiful words, perhaps speaking of superior oratorical or hymnic abilities. Some people just have that, don't they? You know, uh, Certain ones we see earlier in Genesis when certain people and certain family lines were more in terms of you know, in industry or metalworking or agriculture or, or uh, uh, you know, music, that sort of thing. Next comes Joseph. Joseph is in verse number 22. He's a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. Okay. D Jacob is extolling him for his fruitfulness, for his multiplication, for his large, you know, he's got double portion, Manasseh and Ephraim, lots of people. Uh, the running over the wall here is not a code for distant tribes, uh, tribes moving away to distant lands. It simply means he's very vibrant, he's very lively, like a, a living, very energetic plant. He was tried very sorely in his early life. Look at verse 23. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him. So the, the prophecy here is given in prophetic or uh, poetic terms. But now, but his bow remained in strength, so he didn't give up. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
but by the God of your Father who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father, have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. The worst you could think happened to him, almost killed, sold into slavery, and then God made him the first ruler of the people of Israel in the world. Strange, isn't it, how God has worked? And uh, that's why the, the kind of gracious extolling of the blessings upon Joseph, he's, he's outstripped all of them. I mean, he's, he's basically in charge of the land of Egypt. It's all at his feet. And all this also reflects Joseph's standing as the old favorite of dad with the multicolored coat. And I suspect that the outpouring and wonder of the blessing here maybe uh, maybe may a little bit like a reward to make up for the tribulation that Joseph experienced in his life. Then we have Benjamin, a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour their prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. He seems to have some violent or warrior tendencies in him and will make use of those at various points in history. Uh, Benjamin had some big problems, as you recall, from later portions of Old Testament history. But out of Benjamin came King Saul and also the Apostle Paul from that tribe. Jacob, then at the end of the chapter here in 49, commands that his body be buried in the land of his fathers in the cave of Machpelah. That's verse 29 through 33. He says, don't, I don't want to be buried here. I have, a, I have a place in that land over there, which Abraham brought, bought with, a, uh, the, with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave it is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. At what age do we recall? 147, I think it is. Hmm. Tremendous. Boy, I wonder how wrinkled up he was. <laughs> Poor fellow. 147. But he could barely draw himself back up into the bed, and he passed. In verse 1 of chapter 50, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. At 50... Six years old, I think, Joseph was at this time, weeping over his dad, having tread the verge of Jordan and crossed to the other side. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. <laughs> Look at that, his servants, the physicians. They're under his authority. Embalm my dad like you do, you know, according to the Egyptian tradition. So they embalmed him that way. He could last longer, I guess, as it were, for the mourning period. Forty days were required for him. For such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned with him seventy days, over two months. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the house. That, you know, that tells you the honor that was given to Joseph in the land. This wasn't just anybody's father. This was the father of their father, the guy who was in charge of basically the whole land, except for Pharaoh, who put everything in Joseph's charge. What an, what, a, what an amazing honor that was for the whole nation to recognize the father of Joseph. Huh. Egypt will be another of God's people in the future, won't they? And they will turn to the God of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he goes to Pharaoh and speaks to him. Uh, he made a promise to uh, bury him in the land. So Pharaoh said, go up, bury him as he made you swear. So he went up and buried his father. All the servants of uh, Pharaoh, the elders of his house, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers. I think they're giving him honor not only because he was Joseph's father, but because one of the patriarchs and of such a great age, perhaps compared to many of them, 
Only their little ones, flocks, and herds they left in the land of Goshen. Later on, of course, they would demand to take those little ones, flocks, and herds with them out of the land of Goshen, but that wouldn't be for another four centuries. They went up with them, chariots and horsemen. It was a very great gathering. They came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation, observing seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is the deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Avel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. The mourning of the land of Egypt, Mitzrayim. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them, for his sons carried them to the, him rather to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought there from Ephron the Hittite as a property for a burial place. Verse 14, And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. So now dad is gone, and the brothers think, okay, now now we're going to get it. Now we're really going to get it. You know, he was just waiting for dad to die, and then he'll get us. So they said... um, They sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying. Now, I don't know if he did command or not because, but these are honest men, aren't they? So they always tell the truth, right? You understand the sarcasm in what I'm saying. So maybe, maybe not. But let's just suppose that they've gotten straightened out. Now they're telling the truth. They have been kind of chastised into true honesty uh, and they say that their, their father said, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of God, your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. Another fulfillment of his dream back when he was 17, uh, 40 years earlier. And they said, behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to him, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph trusted in God. He didn't trust in his brothers. He trusted in God. And as a consequence, he could truly forgive his brothers for what they have done. He was not bitter. He even brought them comfort. Can you do that in a situation like this? Do you believe that God is sovereign over all things? everything. Listen, I know people who are for decades bitter about X or Y or Z thing or person. They're not like Joseph at all. We need to learn the virtue that Joseph learned of trusting in the sovereignty of God and being able to overlook the sins of others against us and move on from that and not be bitter about it. I mean, the Lord tells us, if you don't know how to forgive others, what I'm paraphrasing, what have you learned about true forgiveness from God? Nothing. Nothing. Joseph is, what an example he is here. What an example. And, and to go back in the... In, in, and look at the whole situation over the decades and say that you meant evil against me. Yes, you are culpable, you are liable, it is sin on your part, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the rescue of many people as it is this day. People are saved alive from famine, prospered, and kind of primed to grow into a great nation and then leave Egypt later on. This is a classic statement of God's sovereignty over all things. Very important in the book 
of Genesis. We learn it from the very beginning. God is over all. We worship him as the true God who is in control of all things. The account of Moses in Genesis, the book of beginnings, ends this way. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Eighty years he spent in Egypt. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. Children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. So he sees his son, his grandson, his uh, great-grandson. We don't know third if they're counting from his son or the next one, but whatever. It's a good heritage. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So he asks, like his father Jacob, don't leave me here. The timing is a little more relaxed. You don't have to take me now to bury me now, but when you leave this place, I want to go with you. At least my body goes with you. You know, when this occurred, I I was interested just to give a kind of reference point. This embalming, this burial happened about 500 years before King Tut was buried in his tomb in the 1300s, that famous king that everybody talks about in the pyramids and all that. The conclusion here of the book, Moses penned this book 400 years later. Of course, there had to be a very healthy and accurate oral tradition of these major events, but God ensured that we had a completely accurate record of what happened. We see in the book the Abrahamic Covenant, and that covenant, my friends, continues down to today, and it's partly in in part what guarantees your salvation. Because God promised Abraham, in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. And Paul takes that in your seed. He takes that in Galatians 3.8 and says, you know what? That's talking about the Messiah. In him, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We're reminded of the sovereign providence of God over human history as seen throughout the book and especially in Joseph's life. Not only does God know what he's doing, he planned it all. He set it all in motion. Thirdly, we see in the book the negative and long-lasting consequences of sin. Starting back in chapter 5, and Abraham, or Adam, rather, Adam bore a son according to his likeness and his image, and he lived so many years, and what happened? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died over and over and over again. The wages of sin is death taught to us from the beginning. Blessings and opportunities were lost because of sin. Death and violence abounded. Even at one point, God testifies that the intents and thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually, chapter 6, and thus the, the divine judgment of the flood. But in contrast, the blessing of God remains upon those who trust in him and collaterally upon those around them. We made that point several times throughout our series in the book. Genesis also speaks much of the curse that comes because of sin and another type of curse due to opposition to God and his people. God says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And we see that throughout the book again and again. And then finally, we have to recognize that a primary purpose of the book of Genesis is to inform us as to the origin of the nation of Israel, the purpose of the nation of Israel, and the destiny of the nation of Israel. The last three quarters of Genesis deal with one human family, the Hebrews, descended from Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 patriarchs. And this narrative sets the stage for the book of Exodus, and, more than that, for the rest of the Bible. Without Genesis, the Bible is uh, not understandable. Okay? You, you, would, you just wouldn't say, where, why are we here? Where did Israel come from? How did they get to, to Egypt? 
What about the connections back to sin and death and the creation of the world and the the promises of the Messiah from Genesis chapter 3 all the way up to Genesis chapter 49 with the scepter not departing from between Judah's feet in his tribe? You wouldn't be able to understand the Bible without Genesis. And so we bring it to you as a, uh, a matter of high importance. It's not something that we can just dismiss. And let me add, we don't just believe that Genesis starts to be literally true at chapter 12. Genesis starts to be literally true at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? God created the heavens and the earth in six days, not by a process of evolution, not by using death and zillions of years and all of that sort of thing. It began the way the Bible tells us it began. And if it didn't begin this way, then the reality is the whole Bible is false. Okay? It's kind of like Paul's argument. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is vain. If God didn't create, if God doesn't exist, then all of this is vanity. But we know that he does exist. Many of us, most of us here personally know him, just like we know the person sitting next to us and the person across the aisle, only even better in a more close and intimate way. This is our God, and this is the book of the beginnings, which set the stage for the rest of who we are and what we do. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the book of Genesis and for uh, these portions that we looked at today, the blessings uh, on, the, on the patriarchs and the prophecies of what would come to them. I pray, Lord, that we will not soon forget the lessons we've learned of, of collateral blessing, of the magnitude of sin and death, of the grace and blessing of God, of the Abrahamic covenant and how it relates to us and all of these things. There's so many different little avenues to go down in, in thinking. Thank you for this, the book which starts out with Bereshit in the beginning. God, you created the heavens and the earth, and you did so for your glory. May these, your people, exist consciously, self-awarely that we exist for your glory and live that way. In Jesus' name, amen.